Oral History in Black and White, a podcast on American experiences of institutional racism and the need for repair. Brought to you by reparationsforslavery.com and the African American Redress Network. Episode 3 on Black Land Loss, Heirs Property Law. One of the first cases I resolved when I got to the center, she was 98 when we started the case. She was over 100 when we finished. Her name's Ursel Chillis, amazing woman who's still with us, but just walking the land with her, holding your arm and telling you this is where my father, whose father was a slave, we bought this land and this is the way we worked and this is what it meant to him and this is what he's always told me, keep the land, don't let the land go anywhere. God's not making any more land. Heirs' property is a legal term for land that is owned by two or more people, usually with a common ancestor who has died without leaving a will. It is the leading cause of involuntary land loss among African Americans. Today's episode features an interview with Josh Walden, chief attorney with the Center for Heirs' Property Preservation in South Carolina a nonprofit working to help African-American families keep their land. James Lennox, a student at the University of the District of Columbia and intern with the African-American Redress Network, begins the discussion. I want to start off by saying thank you so much for being here, Mr. Walden. I've really been looking forward for this. Just to hear a little bit about your experience working on some of these cases, but also to have the opportunity to further educate myself about heirs' property laws. So before we dive in to your work at the Center for Heirs Property Preservation, I was wondering if you could talk to me a little bit about your legal career in general and what led you to going into specifically heirs property law. Well, I've been practicing uh, undergrad and graduated from uh, University of South Carolina and University of South Carolina School of Law. Graduated law school in 99. Initially began work with a sole practitioner out of Columbia learned a lot, uh, sort of thrown into the fire immediately. And most of that had to deal with residential and commercial transactions, general practice law, the state's administration, that sort of thing. Uh, no, nothing exciting like divorce or criminal law or anything along those lines. Stayed with him for about four years, then I made a transition to a mid-sized firm, moved to Anderson Greenville area of South Carolina from Columbia. Uh, practiced there for roughly four years in primary residential real estate, as well as some uh, real property land-based actions. And uh, eventually around 2008, began to remember why I went to law school and sort of what appealed to me about law school, the idea of being part of uh, justice being done, to sound corny, the idea of uh, the idea of being part of something that can truly make a difference, not that folks that attorneys that handle the kind of things I handled prior to joining the center, they do good work and they're extremely important. And if you've ever been involved in those situations, you want an attorney who's conscientious and doing a good job, but it just sort of didn't feel like I was living up to some of the reasons I espoused for going to law school, uh, first generation college graduate, for that matter, first generation high school graduate. Uh, uh, and most of the family came from uh, grandparents from Southern Kentucky, Harlan County, East Tennessee, 
uh, that kind of area and uh, not a lot of uh, lawyers in the family. And uh, but I certainly grew up in, in such a way that I had an appreciation, at least for some of the things uh, that, that those on maybe a lower socioeconomic scale encounter, you know, and one of them is access to a trusted, reliable legal resource when you need one or even the idea of when you need one. So sort of found out that uh, through the South Carolina Law School's alumni page, the, the center was hiring here in Charleston. Uh, sent my resume in, uh, drove down, met with the uh, executive director of that time, Dr. Uh, Jenny L. Stevens. Uh, it was hired in 2009. We were a staff of five serving six counties. And, and I soon became the only attorney on staff. I handled every case. I did every seminar on the weekend and did a, participated and put together every Wills clinic that we'd have. And, and soon, uh, once I, the idea wasn't necessarily that I, I've always wanted to work in heirs property. The idea was I wanted to work in some sort of legal aid, public interest, uh, endeavor that I could utilize my skills as an attorney and, and bring a unique perspective to it based on the way I grew up. Um, and that's sort of what led me to this organization. And once I got here, I, I truly learned what heirs property was above and beyond what you learn it is in law school. As far as sort of on paper, this is the status of owning property in, in, in regards to fee simple versus unclean title and that sort of thing. You mentioned learning about kind of how different it was from what you learned about mm -hmm. in terms of heirs property in college. What were the main differences or the gaps in your knowledge? Well, I mean, in law school, you learned that, you know, the status of title is what dictates heirs property in the sense of. And for the center's purposes, heirs property is property owned or inherited through intestacy. Uh, the last owner of record is is the decedent owner or the owner who originally acquired the property in, in a case where, you know, man acquires a piece of property in 1920 and dies, you know, in 1970 and leaves 10 children. No one ever administers his estate or thereby creating the record of ownership. Uh, every, you know, as far as the clerk of court, as far as the register of deeds office, as far as the tax assessor, as far as the, uh, tax collector, John Smith, who was that original owner is still the owner. And there is no record of who the current owners are. So I understood all of that. And I even understood how tenancy in common works in regards to forced partition sales. And, and I understood that a developer, a predatory developer could buy the interest of an intestate heir step into the shoes of that heir and have the same or have at their availability the same process of forcing a partition sale. Uh, what I didn't know was just sort of, and, and this is probably the case anyway, you, what, what you don't know are, are the, is the emotion of it. You don't know, and you don't realize the inherent inequities involved that, that, that put place people in positions of disparaging power. And what that leads to and, and 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 sort of how the 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 inherent result of uh decades of systemic racism and, and of vulnerability of, of these families that own this property uh how that led to a lot of land loss and, and how and how it also one thing i did not understand was just how often it's internally within the family that forced partition sales happen. 
historically always thought of the evil developer, right? Forcing to sell. And that can happen and does happen. But just as often, I see forced partition sales brought by family members against family members because there's a there's a there's a gap between the way folks look at the land inside the same family, depending on age, socioeconomic status, education, resources, where they grew up, you know, what they do for a living, how they perceive each other, what part of the family they're on, the history up to that point related to the family. It gets extremely intricate. You know, the center, uh, we resolved roughly 286 titles to the tune of about 17 million tax assessed dollars value of property. We've never been involved in a case where a family has lost their land. The reason we can say that is we require agreement. Been in a lot of mediations in a family at a church on a Saturday at 7 a.m. and people going at each other pretty good, you know, and, and it's just like any family. It's probably like, I know it's like my family. I don't know if it's like yours, but every family I've ever been around, you would probably, you can probably pick out the cousins you wouldn't want to have to sit in a room with and resolve something as detailed as who should have rights to a property or what, what you should do with a piece of property and that sort of thing. So I didn't understand the, I wouldn't call it the minutia, but the complexity involved with resolving the issue when on its face, even if you're only dealing with 10 heirs, which is a real, which is an extremely small group. It's, it's never, it's not necessarily less complex than when you're dealing with a hundred. Particularly if your end goal is, is an agreement that protects the land. So, uh, that's what I didn't know and soon learned. <laughs> you mentioned how it's different with every family, but as both a lawyer and a mediator and observer of that process, what do you, do you notice any common themes in terms of what it takes to reach an agreement amongst family members? Everything is, you know, I don't want to say that it's sometimes chance, but it can be based on the number of heirs you're talking about versus the amount of land that we're dealing with. You know, if you've got 10 heirs on 10 acres, or 10 heirs own interest in 50 acres, you're much more likely to reach an agreement than if you have 50 heirs on five acres, right? Mm -hmm. The options greatly dwindle at that point, particularly if you've got a small segment of people living on the property. Um, so sometimes you have to get lucky in regards to the palette you're working with, right? Particularly if people want to keep the land. And again, remember, it's a, it's a relatively... I won't say easy process. It's they're, they're, the process of folks forcing a sale of the land as against each other within a family is a process that's costly. It costs a lot of money to pay an attorney to do that. The only people that get over in that situation are the attorneys because they're getting paid. And by the time the property's sold and everybody's been fighting over whether to sell it or who gets what after it's sold, the attorneys are going to get generally paid off the top, right? So the, even the money they're splitting after the fact is going to be diminished greatly. You've got to have a common goal. So if you're looking at, if you can start with everyone wants to keep the property, the property is valued the same way amongst the family across the board. Even if they're in disagreement about how to, what to do with it, even if they're in disagreement about if they're going to split it physically, how the split should occur. If everybody wants to keep the property, you've got a shot, right? Doesn't mean you're going to be successful, but you at least have a shot. And then 
comes into play how many heirs versus how many acres, you know, a hundred years ago, what it took to acquire and maintain and keep the property, what a gift it is that you, by virtue of being born and someone dying, you inherited an interest in the property, no money out of your pocket, no risk associated with acquiring it, no risk associated with keeping it against people who may want to seek to take it over the years. Um, so I've seen folks turn an initially combative situation amongst the family. I saw one heir actually just bring up the picture of her great grandmother around this big table and just set, set the photograph up in the middle of it. And what we did was we put it on the wall, right? And then we, we started talking about just what's the history? What's the story behind it, right? How did she acquire it? What did she, what did she do to keep it? Now, it'd be very, you know, cinematic if that everybody was kumbaya after that and everybody held hands. That's not the case all the time. But that's a really strong foundation. The folks who have been successful have a keen appreciation of the history associated and the individual in question who was the original decedent owner. And then a commonality about what, what they want to do with the property. If you've got a group of people who want to sell, you've got a group of people who want to keep, you got you got some tough road to hoe. I mean, you might be able to comprise some sort of partitioning kind or physical division, and you put people who want to sell on one piece and people who want to keep it on another. Uh, but that can be difficult too. Uh, so get lucky with the size and number of heirs, have an appreciation of the history of the original decedent owner, get a knowledge and be educated on what the law says. Because sometimes the myths associated with this form of ownership put people in a position to where they take certain stances that they think are legally, you know, backed by law and they're not. And then, you know, that, that those are sort of the underlying. And then, then finally, just the stick-to-itiveness and dogged determination because I've seen, I, I say often these things are an ebb and flow particularly in media, family mediation, and it can go in the ditch and, and, you know, and you feel like it's dead and then it sort of gets revived or, or you can think everything's going wonderfully. And then all of a sudden one day it sort of goes off the rails because two people sort of get into it you know, and, and no one can ever get back on the same page again. So it's, it's, it's a challenging process. I mean, if I was going to pick the primary reason that people engage the center, get an attorney, and it sort of dies on the vine, it's because of family disagreement. You mentioned how one thing that can be an issue is people not having a full understanding, descendants of heirs property laws. Mm -hmm. What would you say are some of the most common misconceptions about the nature of the laws? One, co one really common myth was it takes a majority of the heirs to decide to sell the property. And which is simply not the case in South Carolina, at least uh, if one heir is an heir, they can bring a partition sale against everyone else and force a sale. And if the other heirs aren't in a position to buy them out and the court determines you can't really partition in kind or physically divide the property in a way that's fair and that everybody can agree on, then the property is very often sold. Another one is just the dynamics within the family that, you know, that, that a spouse of an heir can inherit or, the children, just how, what the law says about that tendency and common group and how it can expand. You know, the idea that if I'm an heir, a lineal heir, and I've inherited, I have a wife, 
and I die without a will, my wife's going to inherit one half interest and my son will inherit the other half interest of whatever my interest is. My wife can remarry and she dies. Then that second husband is going to inherit an interest in my family land and any kids they have or any kids he brought to that marriage after he dies. So that group can grow significantly and it can grow and be populated by folks who have no blood or vested interest in the property, right? Uh, and then another thing that we often hear is the idea that if I've lived on a piece long enough that within the family that it's automatically mine, or if I put a fence up or if I have a survey prepared that somehow that partitions the property legally, the idea that if I'm the oldest male I control and everybody has to do what, what I say they can do or everything has to run through me, or the oldest member, not just necessarily the male. I've seen male before and I've seen the oldest member take that role. And certainly people can defer to them through by way of, you know, out of respect and, and that be the way they operate. But obviously, legally speaking, there's no greater weight. Or if you own 50%, you somehow have authority over somebody who owns 1%, which is not true. So there's no sense of majority. Yeah. 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 That's what makes it so keenly vulnerable. The interest you own is in the whole. You know, you got 10 heirs and 10 acres. You own one tenth in, in the 10 acres. You don't own 100% one acre. It would mm -hmm. take an agreement by everyone as to where those individual one acre tracks are cut out and who's going to be assigned to what track in order to have a partition in kind that takes effect. And it would take legal action to bring that to legal reality. But the idea that I'm an heir and I'm one of those 10 on 10 acres and I build a fence around one acre and I build my house. At the end of the day, when I die, my kids look to uh, do something with that land. All I ever owned was one tenth, and now they own less than one tenth each of them because they're splitting my one tenth. With I know that each case and each family situation is different, mm -hmm. but for me, one thing that I've been interested in is when you don't have this consensus. You like we just talked about how there's no real majority. Mm -hmm. How do you, have you seen families determine who's actually on the land at a given time? site-built home, right? Maybe the, the domicile of the original decedent owner, whether it was great-great-grandfather or great-great-grandmother, the house they built on the land as the original owner. Uh, very often, people just sort of, after that person dies, someone will move in. Maybe it was the caregiver in the later days just stays there, keeps up the property, pays the taxes, keeps the house up, but the house and the land is technically in the decedent owner's name still. The problem that happens very often is, let's say that's that 10 heirs and 10 acres example, and there's an original decedent heir home on that property, and one of the heirs lives there. The other heirs aren't going to be able to, generally speaking, construct an on-site built structure because you're going to need a mortgage. You're going to need clear title in order to have a mortgage. The property can't be used for collateral in a mortgage. So most of the folks are relegated to manufactured housing. Um, a lot of times there's no there's no mortgage on a, on you can, or at least you can you can you can purchase through a, a, a purchase contract and a note a manufactured home and then if you don't pay there's a claim and delivery action that's sort of a mortgage foreclosure for personal property which is what a manufactured home is they go hook everything up and just pull the home off right but literally I've seen first come first serve I mean. Let's say that 10 acres is zoned that there's only one structure per acre, right? So 
somebody goes and you got the you got the home site and somebody gets approved to have a manufactured home put on the property there's only the home that land's only going to hold so many manufactured homes maybe less than 10 if they're if they're put in places to where a configuration of you can't cut out 10 equal parts considering access easements and that sort of thing right so sometimes it's almost a, a, a land dash right who gets out there first and sometimes you can have an over representation of one family one line of the family i mean if you've got 10 children on the 10 acres maybe they're the 10 acres maybe one of those 10 pass away and they have six children and those six children who have all split that one heirs one tenth interest wise all have homes across the property even though they own less mm -hmm. less than one tenth and the other nine owners of one tenth have no room to to get on the property because it's been it's been you know, there have been homes placed on the property. So sometimes it's about who's out there first. Sometimes it's about uh, maybe if there's an overseer, they, they say, okay, you can move on the property and everybody defers to that person. So sometimes it's about just getting permission from the from the individual who everyone recognizes as sort of the gatekeeper. But, you know, I've, I've had tons of people come through the center and be an heir on property and they can't get on the property. Because it's 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 there's too many folks already on it, even though they they're an equal owner. So other than the manufactured home, there are no real legal guidelines for who can develop a home on the property, reside on the property. You to, yeah, you have equal rights to use and enjoyment of the property as a whole. So what you could do on the property if you owned it by yourself is what you can do on the property. Now, short of changing things like selling timber, there are certain liabilities associated with selling timber as an heir's property owner off of uh, heir's property without the consent and permission of uh, the other heirs, which can be difficult because there's been no legal determination of who the heirs are. So how do you get someone to sign a contract? And there's no legal determination of who's has the capacity to sign the contract as an owner. Yeah. The issue of legal reform is something I want to touch on more broadly later in the interview. But mm -hmm. one question I do have to ask you now is, do you feel like there are small changes that could be made to the laws that gives it a little more clarity on who's able to develop, who's able to reside? Or do you think that it's what's necessary is more sweeping change? The problem with heirs property and the law that sort of governs it is the same. It's just that tenancy in common law. It's the law of multiple owners. The two of us could buy property together. We would be tenants in common, more likely than not. We're bound by the same rules as heirs. You could force a sale against me. I could force a sale against you. You could sell your interest to a developer and the developer could come in and force, try to attempt to force a sale and force me off the property and vice versa. Those, that, that, that ownership form is just, it's not a heir's property law. It's the law of, it's the law of multiple ownership when more than one person owns land together. You're talking about heir's property. You're really talking about just people who are placed in that position by way of intestacy. The further problem is intestacy is the way to protect land rights, right? I mean, it's a default. It's a default that says if I die and I don't have a will, that it's not as if my land can be sold from my state, right? Or the state can take my land. It says if I die, but the law says my wife will inherit everything if I don't have children. If I have children, then my wife and my children will split it. Most people would say that's reasonable, right? You wouldn't right. want it. So, but but you can therein lies the issue. When that goes on for generations, it makes for some strange bedfellows because of the laws of intestacy. So, I think the Uniform Heirs Property Partition Act that's being promulgated across you know 
the Southeast right now, and I know South Carolina adopted it, um, certainly um, makes it more difficult than it used to be to force a sale as an interloping developer. In my opinion, and this is more uh, anecdotal than anything that I have about it, I think it sort of removed from that fray some lower level developers, lower level speculators uh, prior to the adoption of the act. If you could buy the interest of an heir and bring an action very often, it would be sold at an auction for less than what it was worth. Uh, the heirs would generally not have the ability to buy out the, the interest of the person attempting to force a sale under that right of first refusal. And, 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 and at the end of the day, the considerations that it's not just a pecuniary, uh, determination. In other words, in, in South Carolina, the common law has always been it's division in kind is, is preferred over division of sale. In other words, partition in kind, dividing it physically is preferred always, mm -hmm. but that just didn't seem to happen. What always happened was it always ended up in a sale because people couldn't agree to even a physical partition. And when you had a pecuniary interest, if, if you're a developer and you say, okay, my, my 10% ownership in 10 acres is worth more than hundred percent one acre. That's a presumption that you can, you can, that's something that you can prove relatively easy, right? So it always generally led to a sale under the new law. There are, there are, there are other factors that the judges can understand, can hear to make that determination. Things like history of who's paid the taxes, the, 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 the historical value of a property come into play under the new law. I mean, there are a lot of things that were never considered before, but I think we make hay on this issue primarily one way. The center, any given time, has 250 ongoing cases, right? But we make hay and we address the issue by providing education and access to our trusted legal resource to, one, administer estates inside the 10-year period. South Carolina, you have 10 years to probate or administer the estate of a decedent, creating the record of who inherits. Once it goes past 10 years, there are more complex actions, determination of heirs actions in the probate court or the quiet title actions in the master and equities court. Getting will, that's why, you know, wills clinics are important. Getting, getting people educated about what you need to do with your property, how to plan for death, have a succession plan or an estate plan. And then once someone passes away, having, having a resource legally, some folks can't afford an attorney, right? Having a resource that, that can, administer the estate and, and resolve the estate, creating the record of who the owners are, then have a succession or estate plan for them. Um, I think it's resource and education. I don't think an overhaul of the intestacy law would be something that would be warranted or even desired. Again, to me, intestacy law is a form of protection for a family. Problem is, is access, equal access to folks to trusted legal resources and at public education as to what has to happen when someone passes away. We're starting to see the fruit of having wills clinics or resolving the states, whether it be through state administration inside 10 years or determination of heirs actions outside of 10 years or quiet title actions, there's more complex actions. And after having resolved those issues, the, the, the client has passed away and their daughter or son are bringing the will to us for us to administer their estate. 
that's how you address the issue. The, 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 um, yeah, if it was my world and I could push a button, <laughs> what I would want is these communities that are most affected by this to have access to a trusted legal resource and, and education within the communities to let them know, here's the reason you don't want your property to be heirs property. Here's, here's how you, you know, prepare to prevent your property if it's not heirs property from turning into heirs property. Sometimes people think about heirs property being this property that was acquired right after emancipation or shortly thereafter. The majority of our cases, there's property has been created since 1970. It only takes 10 years and it's perpetual. There's a piece of heirs property being created today. Someone died not, you know, almost 10 years ago and the clock's going to turn and then you can no longer probate the estate through a normal administration. Mm -hmm. So it, 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 without education and, and I don't necessarily think I've had a lot of folks or I've not a lot of folks. I've had folks suggest that, well, then maybe some heirs should maybe inaction by some heirs should constitute an acquiescence of their ownership interests. Then we could call that number down. I'm not a big fan of that. You probably find some folks who are, um, but I, I've seen enough where there are some heirs who had no idea that they're an owner. They live in Philadelphia. You know, their family left the South 1920. You know, they have no idea should they lose their rights to land that they would inherited otherwise because they have no, you know, they have no knowledge of it. So I'm not a big fan of that, although I've heard that bandied about. I want to switch gears because I know from my research and also from talking to you, this is a diverse issue. It affects, you know, unique groups of people, different ethnic groups. I know it um, affects in particular Native Americans, the Southwest, uh, Latinx people, um, kind of working class white families yeah. in the Appalachians. Um, but for the purpose of my project, I'm really focusing mm -hmm. on black families. Can sure. you talk about why this has become such a racialized issue? Yeah. Well, I think, I think it's one of those things. Anytime, anytime you're talking about any kind of problem like this, there, there, there's going to be an overlay of the historical inequities that African-Americans have suffered. And from that standpoint, generational wealth and how it's created and, and there's always a, a, a racial overlay there i mean you like you mentioned you could talk about appalachia right and that's purely a power socioeconomic kind of oriented problem in that area right but there's a different component to the african-american community when you come to that you're talking about you know generations of systemic inequities, the resulting power, lay of power within a particular area as, you know, over the course of time puts people in unequal positions, particularly at a, that formed a baseline of putting people in a position of vulnerability. Uh, one example was, had a client and 99.7% of our clients are African-American, right? We don't, we don't say we only serve African-Americans as far as there's property, you know, that's not something we put out, but that's in this part of the country, in this part of the state, we mostly get African-American clientele. 
um, had a had a had a parcel of land they wanted to get uh, perked. I don't know if you know what that is, but it's basically a percolation test on a piece of property that determines whether you can put a well and septic tank on the property for purposes of supporting the structure, right? And you have to go through certain county requirements and tests to do that. And it's funny how uh, I've had many clients tell me that they would go try to get what they call perk, get a perk test and get approved for purpose of putting a manufactured home there. And this particular piece of property just would never perk, uh, whoever they sent out for the test. And then eventually the family just sort of gave up onto it and let it go to tax sale. As soon as the new owner went and got it perked, it got perked immediately. Now that landowner did not look like the person who was the original landowner, right? It, it, it's one of those things that uh, I've had clients tell me that attorneys that they, you know, attorneys within their town that they wouldn't, they didn't trust their attorneys. You know, and I'm quoting clients here. I'm quoting but not necessarily even clients, just folks within these communities that are telling me these stories that a lot of white attorneys, a lot of white judges manipulated systems in order to get these, to get their property. Sometimes they would rely on some folks or someone coming at them uh, from a standpoint of wanting to help them. So again, it further ingrains the distrust. So, so even on the out chance that you had someone who was approaching a particular community uh, who wanted to assist and truly wanted to offer a trusted legal resource very often was just, you know, we'll leave it in heirs' property. As a matter of fact, there may be an issue where maybe leaving it in heirs' property is the safest way. That way, no one knows who owns it. You don't know, you know, we don't have to go to a lawyer when dad dies or grandfather dies, right? Because we don't trust him. So we'll just, he'll just give this oral will. This is going to be our property. Y'all just be sure you never sell it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Joe can have the piece over there next to the creek. Sarah can have the piece over next to the pines. And a lot of our families, that's how the land was passed, you know, because because of the the systemic racism and, and because of just the individual racism uh, within a particular community, they're not going to go to an attorney. They don't trust that attorney. There's no attorney that looks like them, right? I mean, that that to me are, are the stories that I've, I've heard over time that sort of build that sort of perfect scenario where if you can't trust the very mechanism that's supposed to protect your land rights because of racism, because of the inequities of power, then how do you protect your land? Better that nobody know you own it. It's better that it just lay below the surface. Now, what that led to was this very vulnerable position because of the tenancy and common law, right? And that forced partition sale possibility and people in the know with power, with resources, with knowledge to buy an heir out who might be in a, in a precarious position financially and then bring a forced partition sale. In those cases, what I think the term you used was an oral will where you're saying it's almost beneficial for no one to know is what you see later generations of descendants having the issues with partition sales and third parties wanting to what like you said take advantage of someone who might be in a precarious financial decision well i think that's one mechanism i mean we've seen more than one case anytime generally if you're if you're in our service area and you're an air property owner you'll start getting letters in the mail 
They want to buy your 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 property, you know, uh, from developers. What I see very often, and it's really interesting because there's sort of two tracks. We see we see again that that those heirs property cases that are multiple generational heirs property that go back into the early 1900s, right? Or even some cases late 1800s. But then a lot of heirs property we see is again was created 20 years ago because of inaction. Right. And we're not talking about acreage. We're just talking about a house, you know, or a small tract of land. And, um, and, and generally what we see in those cases is, you know, th those either fall into disrepair and, 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 you know, or if there's a disagreement amongst the heirs, amongst the family, it can turn internal and, and be a forced partition sale by an heir, by one of the owners, you know, not a third party. I would say, we see roughly about 500 in a non-COVID year. We see roughly 500 people come in for consultations a year. A vast majority of those, their primary problem is family disagreement about what to do with the property. There's no third party involved. Um, the, um, and I think that's what you see. And maybe that's a result of just where we are. And maybe the majority of those properties that are desirable <laughs> are gone, you know, already that they're already either been taken advantage of and, you know, taken by way or people have just sold their properties. But a, a large portion of this is the idea of getting a family on the same page and decide collectively if they want to keep the property. We don't handle cases where folks want to sell property. We only bring actions where everyone wants to keep the property. Since we're a legal aid organization, we found that better to be in our wheelhouse than, you know, than be involved in a case where you got air versus air, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, you see, you see the, the predatory process still goes on. People get letters all the time wanting to buy their interest, uh, sort of testing the waters, trying to get an heir to come forward and sell their interest. So they will be one of those tenant and common owners. But, uh, but just as prevalent is land loss due to disagreement amongst the family. Cause they're within a particular family. You can have a wide range, like any family of folks who have different perspectives different backgrounds, different education levels, different, a different uh, ethic when they look at the land, what the land means to them. Is it primarily a historical family resource that's full of memories and full of, that's almost an homage to that original owner, or is it a, is it, is it, a, is it a monetary resource potentially, you know? And again, it kind of goes back to how many heirs and how much property we're talking about that can sway greatly what, what that end result may or may not be. You, uh, you mentioned how one of the components of how this is a racial issue is the lack of trust, historically speaking, mm -hmm. and legal resources in the community. For you, what do you, what do you prioritize or what do you think is the most important thing in order to build trust with families who historically speaking, either haven't had access to those resources or have faced discrimination from these resources. Sure. And look at, and you can look at it from a community standpoint, you can look at it from an individual standpoint, right? If, if the center is going into a community and it's a, a traditional settlement community, one of those communities that was established after emancipation where, you know, it, it's an African-American community that's been there for generations. Um, and there is a rightful distrust of the legal profession, the legal process as it relates to land, right? 
the approach that you take with a community is sort of similar to the approach you take with uh, an individual in the sense that you have to be vetted by people that they trust. I mean, the center, the first thing we do when we go into a new area, generally, again, pre-COVID, when you could actually go in, go somewhere, <laughs> would be to engage the local pastor, right? Uh, the local church and and have a start having a conversation and and see if the church will host a just a legal seminar just an educational opportunity to come out and say here's what the center does these are the services we offer and here's what we do and here's what the law says about heirs property and here are the dangers and here are the things that you need to be careful if you have heirs property these are the things you need to watch out as far as what people use as a as a ruse to get you to sign something right and you do that and it doesn't engender trust it doesn't necessarily mean that you're trusted if that happens i think over time and what the center has been able to do you know for the last 17 years or so is uh once you're in that position and you start engaging families and clients you have to have a sustained presence and you have to do what you say you're going to do and you have to uh, do it consistently and you have to uh where a, a mea culpa is, is is appropriate you need to do so uh where uh but you have to be consistent you know a lot of the folks that that i've had clients that you know maybe didn't make it out of uh make it out of elementary school because of circumstances but they're sharp and they're intelligent and they uh they know bullshit when they hear it, you know. So the idea of of just doing what your your oath as an attorney says you should do, right? So start with that. And uh and and consistently display truthfulness, consistently display that you care about your client and the community you're working with. That's why and then you have to have dedicated dedicated uh exposure and you have to have at some point some success there's got to be a story generated that this organization actually helped somebody because i think one of the biggest issues not only with this problem but a lot of problems is is education is a key component right okay education is a major component to what we do but you can educate someone to death and never help them you know you can educate them you know, if I'm bleeding and I have three seminars that someone's telling me, well, this is what bleeding looks like. Well, what are you doing? You know, and until you, unless you have a resource to bring to bear that's going to address a problem in a proactive way that resolves it, education only goes so far. It's the beginning point. And it might prevent some things as far as somebody not letting their property turn into heirs' property, which is wonderful. It's a key component to what we do. It's first and foremost in everything we do. But I think where the center is unique is we have attorneys on staff. We're not utilizing volunteer attorneys. I use a pro pro bono attorneys who are trying to keep their lights turned on in their own in their own businesses. Right? These are extremely time intensive intensive uh, cases. Particularly, we talk about the mediation component with families. The fact that we have an attorney. This is okay if you come into the office. We're educating you, but also if you call the office, you can come in and talk to an attorney. And if the family can eventually come together. We'll bring the action and you don't pay attorney's fees. You've got to be able to do something for somebody, not tell them what they need 
you know, tell them what they need without supplying what they need. <laughs> it's it's that can be maddening sometimes for the community. And, and there is fatigue within a community. I can tell you that from our communities we serve and other communities that folks come in and want to study folks. Folks want to come in and take surveys, survey them to death, you know, write wonderful stories about things and, and maybe even educate them on, on the things surrounding whatever the particular issue is you're trying to to address. But at the end of the day, again, like I said, I can bleed on my own. I, you know, somebody could tell me I'm bleeding, explain why I'm bleeding, explain to me the options involved, you know, with trying to make your bleeding stop. But if they're not going to assist you in doing so. Uh, it can be uh, it can be really frustrating for the for the folks we serve. You mentioned how you think that that most important thing is is that concrete success. Is there a clear way that you and the center define what success, initial success could be like in a case, mm -hmm. or do, is it more dependent based on the case? Well, ultimately, ultimately what we want to do is resolve title. If there's a quiet, you know, we, we sort of hit, we're talking about the continuum in time from, from someone dying to multiple generational heirs property, right? We provide services along that continuum. Uh, you know, we might engage somebody after their husband or wife have passed away without a will and they have children. And, but we're inside that 10 year period. So success there would be administering the estate through the probate court, getting a final order that determines per the record who the owners are, and then decide if the heirs involved, because they everybody inherited through intestacy and there was no will, do the children want to transfer their interest to the mother so she can be the sole owner? And then the mother can have a will prepared or some sort of estate plan set up to where when she passes away. So we've prevented a major problem just a generation away. Mm -hmm. That's one. If it's outside the 10 years and maybe we're talking about a generation and a half, maybe that same woman, maybe both, both, you know, husband and wife have both passed away and you have just the children. Maybe one of the children have passed away and they've got kids and a, and a spouse. We resolve that by way of a determination of heirs action in the probate court. 20 years after the death of the, la of the last mother or father of the, of the spouses, we've resolved that and we go about that same process. So resolving whatever issue there is, whether it be single generation, a couple or multiple generational stuff on those, through those different mechanisms of state administration, determination of heirs actions, quiet title partition actions, that's success. I mean, getting a family from point A to point Z, right? and getting a court order at the end that says what we needed to establish as per the record, as far as the owners has been accomplished. And now we've got an estate, we're gonna put a state plan in place for the, for the individual owner or owners. Um, that's what success looks like. I mean, at the end of the day, and there can be successes along the way, you know? Sometimes we don't get all the way to Z. You know, sometimes we get to F and it sort of falls apart because of disagreement. So it, it can be case specific, but the ideal is getting to that end result with a court order and as a state plan in place. I guess the final question I have for you, and I know um, this might be a little tricky for you to answer, and if you're not comfortable, I completely understand, is this falls more into kind of the abstract and less in terms of the legal world, but some of the work that I'm doing is with any racialized issue there, I think is, especially now with HR 40, and just kind of this wider, um, more progressive reckoning we're having with our history, there is the question of restorative justice, reparations. 
in your opinion, do you think there's a fair form of reparative justices for families, specifically black families who've suffered from land loss due to heirs property where it was a racial issue, where they didn't, you know, get a fair trial in court, where they didn't have proper representation? You know, theoretically, I think that's appropriate. I think it would be pretty unreasonable to say that that's not a something we would desire. I guess my question is, is how do you determine that? You know, I don't know. I mean, someone a lot smarter than me, I'm sure, could come up with some way to determine that in a, with a, on a consistent basis that's, that's trackable and that sort of thing. The idea of, and when, and when does that line of demarcation happen? When does, when it's an interfamily forced partition sale? Doesn't mean that there's not racial components involved, right? I mean, to get a family to that point. So how do you do, how does that weigh in and how do you determine that and how do you weigh that versus the more easily discernible third party developer buys the interest of an heir and forces a sale against the will of all the, all the heirs, right? That's pretty low hanging fruit for purposes of at least a pathway to think about it, you know? Um, I really want to personally thank you for taking this time. This has been especially illuminating for me just to find out kind of an understanding of those legal mechanisms of what this process looks like. So I do really want to thank you for that. Just in this short time that I've been studying heirs property, it's, it's really incredible hearing about the work that you guys are doing at the center. Thank you for just giving me an opportunity to just talk about an issue that, you know, an issue that I care a lot about and that the center cares a lot about and is important. And, uh, the people we serve are amazing folks and all you have to do is walk the land with someone. Uh, my, one of the first cases I resolved when I got to the center, uh, she was, she was right at a, she was 98 when we started the case. She was over a hundred when we finished. Her name's Ursel Chillis. She's in one of our videos. If you ever want to see that, go to the YouTube channel for the center. And I think Ursel's on one of those videos. Uh, amazing woman who's still with us, but just walking the land with her holding your arm and telling you this is where my father, whose father was a slave, we bought this land and this is the way we worked and this is what it meant to him. And this is what he's always told me, keep the land. Don't let the land go anywhere. God's not making any more land, right? To have this land for us and our family forever and to, to be able to, and that those stories were never told. I mean, they never heard. And the fact that someone like yourself and your organization and who you're working for would would give us a platform to sort of talk about it. Whoever sees this, you know, if no one, if one, whatever, they have an opportunity to have their stories be told. Generations of folks who, who are dealing with this issue. This interview with Josh Walden from the Center for Heirs Property Preservation of South Carolina was conducted by University of the District of Columbia student James Lennox and produced by Lottie Lieb Dula. Thanks to Dr. Linda Mann of the African American Redress Center and Tamara Roan of reparationsforslavery.com. You've been listening to Oral History in Black and White a podcast on American experiences of institutional racism and the need for repair. Brought to you by reparationsforslavery.com and the African American Redress Network.